Welcome to the LPP Podcast. LPP is the Life Process Program, a non-12-step program for people who want to free themselves from addiction and addiction-related issues in their lives. To learn more about the program or to check out free resources like articles, videos, blogs, and podcast episodes related to solving addiction-related problems, visit our site at lifeprocessprogram.com or follow us on social media using any of the links in the show notes. Today's guest is Dolores Cloward, D for short. D is a life process program coach with a range of interesting professional experiences and personal experiences to share. Um, her own experience with addiction, how she overcame it, and also her trajectory from being a person who struggled to becoming someone in the helping profession, and with Stanton Peel, no less, one of the world's greatest minds in psychology, particularly addiction psychology. Dee and I talk about quite a few things today. We talk about her background, as I mentioned, which includes her finding Smart Recovery, which is a non-12-step support group that functions similarly to the Life Process Program. And actually, I ask her to compare and contrast Smart and LPP, something that she does very well while honoring the nuance. She tells me the story of meeting Stanton Peel and then later working with him. And then we also talk about important differences between abstinence from alcohol and drugs versus drinking and using drugs moderately, as well as the differences between moderation and harm reduction. All of that and much more on episode 29 of the LPP podcast with Dolores Cloward. I'm here with LPP's own Dolores Cloward. Dee, it's really good to be talking with you. Thanks, Zach. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I'm glad we're doing this. Me too. A lot of reasons it's good to have you on the podcast. One of them being that every time I speak with you, it's therapeutic. And a, <laughs> maybe a less selfish reason is that I, I think I just happen to be a voice that's associated with a lot of the LPP content that we put out. But I, I always have this weird, my voice is hardly representative of all the people doing all of the creating and critical thinking and work in the program and you being a key player. So I think that it's going to be refreshing for people to hear another voice associated with LPP and a fresh perspective on a lot of the issues that we discuss. All of us in the program have enough in common regarding our understanding of addiction and the fundamental framework for overcoming it that we work cohesively, but all of us come from different backgrounds, have different temperamental preferences, attitudes, all different experiences and different perspectives on life. So we'll definitely talk about your experience as a life process program coach and how you became involved with Stanton Peel's work in this program, but we have plenty of time for all of that. So maybe I should just back up. Could you tell me and listeners a bit about your background and you can do it however you want, but perhaps include why you became interested in addiction in the first place. Well, that actually goes back further than you might expect. I actually did an undergraduate thesis on addiction. So somewhere in there, I've been interested in policy and how it plays out in the in society for a while. And then, you know, that melded with my own personal experience, which changed over the years. I I felt very strongly for a long time that Um, It was nobody's business what I did but my own. And over the years, I really had to acknowledge that I had some real issues with drugs, drinking, addictive 
issues in general. So I've kind of dove into it from that end. And that has led me into exploring some programs that made a little more sense to me than some of what is typically available out there. I was sort of turned off by the traditional, quote, standard treatments available. And as somebody who's a little bit older in this game, there were not a lot of options when I first, first started looking into things maybe in the 90s somewhere, Hmm. late 80s, 90s. You mentioned that you had a mindset that what you were up to was no one's business really, but um, sort of completely contradicting of that. Are you comfortable sharing some of your own experiences with addiction or the reasons why you were looking for uh, some sort of help with it or... Or is that something that we should table? No, no, we can we can look at that a little bit. I'll try to keep a, a balance there with not, you know, being embarrassing about it. I had from high school age experimented a lot and in a pretty heavy way. And so I, you know, I it was part of my identity. I considered myself a partier. I like drinking a lot. I also like drugs and I was pretty high functioning. So that was always my measure that, you know, as long as I could do the things that people seemed to feel were important for me to do, um, then it was my business, what I did. And I was able to keep that going for a, a really long time, but things would spin a little out of control at times. And then I'd have to focus in Um, I mentioned the early 90s, and that's when I started having children. So I definitely did not drink when um, I was pregnant, although I did smoke cigarettes. I never could get through that one at that time. Um, So that was probably when I started looking a little more seriously off and on. But then I would go, I bounced around a lot between periods of abstaining and then kind of going back full tilt sometimes for a good long while. Um, Eventually, I had a relationship that was falling apart and he made a big issue about that in terms of custody. Now, that's a tricky one because I don't want to come off sounding like oh, it was all his fault and, you know, he just made it all up. That's not true. But at the same time, he was pretty vicious about it. And, you know, sometimes things go in your favor that way. Sometimes they don't. But at that point, it was really clear that I had to make serious changes or I was not going to maintain custody of my youngest children. So that was when I first got serious, uh, what I consider got serious about it um, about 15 years ago. And that's when I found Smart Recovery. Yeah. Tell me about that. The options that are reasonable and commonsensical for trying to outlive or develop out of an addiction are far and few between now, but way less common then. Did you go through a few different options first and land on Smart or did you, were you lucky enough to find Smart first? I looked for smart, so to speak, in the, the sense that the, I, I had four little children at that point, 
And the idea of having to give up all my evening time to go to meetings, to AA meetings, just made me feel instantly defeated. And so I started looking around. It just, I downloaded the AA meeting schedule, and then I started looking and said, isn't there anything that I can do, you know, that's, that's an alternative, that the courts might consider in my favor, et cetera, and that's when I found SMART. And I found that at that time, everything was wide open. So their message boards, you didn't have to join or anything to become a part of the community. And I started reading and I just felt very drawn to the people, to the stories and to their sense of hope in a really thoughtful way that I wasn't as familiar with. Mm. So it, I was very attracted to it. Some of the thinking was um, familiar to me from a little smattering of psychology that, you know, had made sense to me over the years. And I really took full advantage of it. So I'm, I'm forever grateful to SMART that that first time around, I don't want to say it didn't stick because ultimately it did, but I had a long lapse in there for a while in the middle of my, in the earlier-ish part of my smart recovery history. And then since that, though, that one was almost 11 years ago. So Mm. I have been completely abstinent from drinking for that period of time. And, you know, I lead a pretty calm, normal life. I should probably do the courtesy of not assuming everyone knows what SMART is. You and I have the curse of knowledge there. So will you tell people about what it is and why it was attractive to you and distinguishing it from the other, like you said, AA groups that you visited? Yes. Um, SMART recovery is based on psychology, first and foremost. And they they call themselves either science-oriented or, or evidence-based now, I believe. And it is based specifically on the psychology of Albert Ellis's REBT, which stands for Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy. And it's a, there are three sort of founding fathers of cognitive behavior therapy in my mind. One of them is Albert Ellis, one is Aaron Beck, one is, um, Donald Meikenbaum, mm. and they all came to very similar places with the overarching idea being that the way we think greatly affects the way we feel and the way we act, and that if we can change the way we think, we have a fair amount of control over the rest of those things in our lives. And so that made a lot of sense to me. Um, and they had practical exercises that people would demonstrate how they were using. And I found, I felt that that was a key for me, although I've had a lot, I had had a lot of trouble putting things like that into real practice in real life. So I, you know, I'm one of those people that has a bookshelf full of great self-help books that 
I've read, but I never really wrote out one of the exercises from. So mm. at SMART, for whatever reason, I that was part of what I determined for myself was that I was really going to give it a fair shot. It seemed sensible and that I was going to really practice and do the things that people suggested I do. Cause it didn't sound um, like things that didn't make sense to me. So the first program that you were associated with that made philosophical sense and scientific sense, and maybe the first program that you felt willing and ready to apply to your own life? Well, it was the first one that I was, that resonated with my own thinking, I suppose. So I had had some history with AA. I wasn't a very gung-ho AA person. Um, I was more the sit in the back um, and try to be, an obtrusive type of person, but I used to go and I used to get a fair amount of comfort from that. And I lived in New York city for many years. So in New York, you have access to a huge variety of different types of meetings. You know, if you're feeling businessy, you can go to the wall street people's meeting and there's a meeting, a famous meeting in the village. That's for, all the very artsy people and musicians and people like that. And then there are big, huge meetings and the Brooklyn Heights meeting. And so there, it was, I had a smattering of it, but not in a deep programmatic way. What was different between say the books on your shelf that, that also resonated with you, but you didn't apply to your life and then smart, which resonated with you. And then you did apply. Probably that that little piece of community that was attached to it, and that was almost accidental to me. I found their forums where people, they have a, a section online where you can join and you can talk in, in writing, in forums, so it's not real-time conversation like in a chat room, but, you know, people will write something and then maybe a day later somebody will write another thought about it and, and so sort of um, elongated conversation then they also had a chat room and they had scheduled meetings so I kind of unexpectedly wandered into a meeting I don't know that I would have been brave enough to do that if I knew how it worked but I did it by accident and so being a polite <laughs> person they were asking me questions and I felt compelled to answer (laughs) (laughs) and it ended up feeling you know very accepting and personal and it it pulled me into that that atmosphere of, of being in a place where people wanted to be helpful and where maybe there were things that I could learn and it made sense to me even if I didn't quite get everything that they were saying so I was intrigued that's really interesting. AA offers the support network kind of a thing, the socialization. I mean, you mentioned that you could find a meeting anywhere. Smart yeah. offered that socialization piece, at least to an extent, and with interesting formats, and also sort of mapped on to reality, at least for you. And so now you're, <laughs> now you're involved in it, even if it was by accident. And uh, of course, I know about you that you eventually worked for SMART, how did that transition happen between being a participant and then um, actually engaging as an employee for SMART Recovery? 
Well, it wasn't just as an, it, it went through multiple transitions. They have a big volunteer component. And at that, as it's grown, it's a little more restrictive. There, there are, you have to apply and whatnot. But at that time, they were very open to volunteering. So I started volunteering with them on their message boards in all kinds of capacities as a, a little bit of a site administrator. Um, I was a moderator for the forums. I became a facilitator fairly early on, maybe a little too early, honestly. But it was a very compelling feeling to feel valued and like what I said made sense and that people were appreciative of my thinking, not just dismissive of it in various ways. And so I became very, very attached to that whole process of being both a participant and then a volunteer deeply involved. And I dove more and more into that until really at a certain point they came to me and said we can't keep letting you do this for free and that was when I sort of got a couple of titles there and they did start paying me on a on a somewhat I really call it a stipend it was a somewhat regular very tiny little amount so I was in charge of their court outreach program, which had to do with getting SMART accepted by the U.S. courts Mm. and providing a mechanism that people could use SMART as AA does to, to validate that they've been going to meetings and been working on themselves. And then I also was in charge of their special events, which were really their online events, very similar to what we're doing right now. So I had, I ran a podcast that it was like four to six times a year. We didn't do it very often, but I had some really interesting people, including Dr. Stanton Peel. And that I suppose could be a good segue because that is how I met Stanton was through his generosity and speaking to the smart community. Um, And then he did three podcasts with me and with Tom Horvath, the president of SMART at that time, um, that were very well received. And they're, I think they're still the highest you know, number of people listened to those of any in SMART's repertoire, if I'm not mistaken. You can tell that you're a, you are a host because you're just trying to make me look good right now with a nice transition um, it obviously, happened. it was an accident. I swear. <laughs> <laughs> you nurtured it. It was very nice. So obviously, you work at the Life Process Program now, which is is what this podcast represents. And of course, Stanton, who you mentioned, is the creator of the program. Um, I know that any story about Stanton is going to be an interesting one. So I'm very interested to know how you um, how you continued conversations with him post-podcast and even what you talked about in the podcast that that made you interested in one another? Well, the very first time I met Stanton was through, through Smart Recovery was many years ago before we had a formal podcast. And so there was like a live chat that somebody else put together. And we're talking at least 
14 years ago or something like that. And at that time, I was in complete awe of Stanton Peel. And Smart Recovery really was too. I, I think that most people who are aware of any kind of alternatives in recovery, alternatives to AA and 12-step, um, would not hesitate to say that, that Dr. Peel is the father of all of it, really. Mm-hmm. And so to Smart Recovery, he was really like a figure, you know, at the top of the food chain there. And I remember we were all shocked that he would be willing to do that for our little bitty organization at that time online without anything fancy. And it just felt like such an honor. So I, you know, I've never a hundred percent lost that slightly awestruck feeling about him. Although, you know, as I've gotten to know him and I, I know you're friendly with him also, he's such an engaging, lovely person too, that it's, it's odd that I would be able to hold both those things at the same time, but <laughs> I kind of do. So subsequent to that, um, more around the five, six years ago, we, um, I invited him for some podcasts with Tom Horvath, really because as two people prominent in, for lack of a better word, alternatives in recovery, I thought that it would be an interesting discussion, both their similarities and their differences, more similarities and differences overall, but some key ones. Between SMART and the Life Process Program? Between SMART and Stanton's overall philosophy, I would say. Gotcha. Can you name a few? There's no direct um, conflict, I would say, between the programs. They're both based on good sense. They're both based on psychological principles. They're both based on people coming to their own conclusions and making their own choices. Um, It's more maybe a, a... a difference in emphasis and application to a certain extent. But Tom Horvath and Stanton Peel have also been friends for a number of years, so they have a very interesting dynamic as well, and and they prove to be really um, interesting and, and engaging podcasts, I would say. Stanton, I've learned, has a really good sense about people's strengths and their abilities at a clinical level, I mean that term broadly, and obviously he saw something in you that he knew would be totally helpful and bring value to people. What was that conversation like when he asked you to do work for his program? That was just one of those good timing things, Zach. You know, he actually asked me, as somebody involved with the volunteer community at SMART, if I knew people that might be interested in that type of a role. And I said, well, I don't have any therapy, social work, psychology degrees, but I might be interested. What do you think? And he said, 
oh my god you would be perfect you know and, <laughs> and um we went from there and it happened it happened really very quickly and it's been I want to say four years now that I've been doing coaching with the life process program. So it's, um, it was very much a nice just synchronicity of timing because I was looking to broaden out from smart recovery and look into other avenues. And it just happened at the, at the exact perfect time. So it was, it was very nice for me and it gave it a little shift in the structure of what I was doing. I was more involved administratively at that point with smart and it was a really nice opportunity for me to get back to working more directly with people. And do you do any work with smart anymore? I flipped it. I used to do work almost exclusively on for the online community and the national organization. And now I don't do either of those really at all, but I do still do a meeting locally here in Cincinnati. And um, I've had a lot of fun with that one. It's in the jail. We've been on hiatus because of the COVID situation. Right. Um, although we've moved it to an online meeting for people who can find us. Um, but it's very, it's has been very enjoyable. It's been about a year and a half, almost two years that we've been doing that. And I really like working with that group of people. It's the women in our County jail, which is a little unusual. Um, and it's, I, I don't know. There's something about that particular population that I really resonate with. I really like the women. I think they all are are fascinating and have so much to offer. And um, sometimes it's kind of heartbreaking too. But mm. I'm very glad that I've added that in as a local endeavor. So now working at LPP, what's what's similar about our program? I mean, I'd like to compare and contrast them. Um, with both both programs address concerns about addiction with different models, different methodology. They don't, I think you mentioned this, they don't necessarily have any conflict with each other, um, but perhaps different ways of thinking in, in some sense. What is similar between the two programs? The overall perspective is very, very similar, that people can be the agents of their own change, that people can learn to trust themselves, their own abilities, strength, thinking, and that addiction or problems with either a substance or an activity is not something that defines a person. It's just something that's happening in a person's life at a particular point in time. So that overall view that people can get better, that it that the self-empowerment is a key piece of really finding freedom in your life, that it's not a pass-fail equation, all of those things, I think, are shared by both programs. What's different about them philosophically? And I know that's a 
that's can be a tough one to parse, but maybe give it your best shot. There are a few things that are different. I would say that the most noticeable things and the things that probably Dr. Peel would point to are that SMART orients itself around abstinence. So they use the tools of psychology and they very specifically apply those to the goal of abstinence from a substance or behavior. And that can be a little funny with things like eating disorders, but they try to make that fit. So they'll say, well, if it's an eating disorder, you have to eat, but you could abstain from sugar or you could abstain from overeating or you could abstain from however you want to couch it. So that's the overall orientation. Obviously, that works best for things like substances, that abstinence approach. They are also, well, I th- let's, let's say that is the, the main difference, I would say. They're a little more wedded to, as I said, the psychology of Albert Ellis. They're, that's not... the case. Their tools are not exclusive to that. They have a few homemade ones. They have, they borrow from ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. They borrow from the business world, cost-benefit analyses and things like that. But their core, I think, is REBT. So I think that the Life Process Program borrows much more broadly and also approaches more broadly. So at the Life Process Program, we don't have a particular goal in mind for people. It's up to them what they want to do and what they want to try to do and what they feel is successful or not for them. I'd say that maybe a little more than half the people that I'm coaching right now are shooting for abstinence and somewhere around 50%, maybe just slightly less, want something that looks more like moderate drinking, at least ultimately. So that's a, that's a distinction. That may hold true in SMART too, but it's sort of one of those things that they just won't focus the conversation on those folks mm. who are more looking for moderation. And I understand it. It's easier to present it that way. It's Moderation is messy. So it's something that I think you weigh in a program. I think it's probably, personally, I think it's more intellectually honest to at least take a stab at, at accommodating the whole range of people's goals and also the idea that logically there is no reason that people cannot learn to drink moderately or reduce the harm that they might cause otherwise to themselves and other people. Um, Even though many of us have found that difficult. So I find that a little bit difficult to reconcile at SMART, and I think I was a little frightened by those questions before I talked really quite a bit to Stanton about it. We went back and forth a fair amount about those questions of abstinence. 
And you were hesitant to adopt the life process program idea? No, I, I believed in it, it as an idea, as I said, but I've never um, wanted to experiment further in my own life. So oh, I, I see, I see. I'm philosophically in favor of harm reduction and moderation, and I believe wholeheartedly in those. For my own self, I am hesitant about those ideas. They gotcha. scare me. And I recognize that there's some irrationality there, but I'm also pretty happy with the place that I am in life. So I don't, I think I'm good with my personal choice of abstaining from alcohol and, you know, crack cocaine and sniffing heroin. And I'm, I, I've never said forever to anything. Like, I'll forever, never, ever do that. I've never said that. But chances are pretty good that I won't revisit those. All right. So I, I always – here's a question that I field a lot. And um, an idea that people have is that because Life Process Program doesn't take a position on abstinence and doesn't even really take a position on moderation – I mean, yeah, we say that doing something in moderation is possible – but maybe the overall theme is more like it's worthwhile to think about the dimensions of your life that are underlying causes of cyclical behavior. And once you can sort all those out, you can figure out some sort of a overall balance. And that to people can seem undisciplined. I think one of the beautiful things about the program is that there's a fundamental framework that should work for just about anybody but maybe it's the it's coaches who are able to work one-on-one with people to understand what it is that they want and how they might go about it. So how does a person like you, who you said in your own life, after giving it some thought, the idea of moderation with respect to things that you've had a problem with, it's not something that you're up for, at least right now, even if that doesn't mean forever. Um, and so how do you work with people who, let's say two, two different things. How do you work with people who are just unsure about what they want and, and make sure that you're not being leading toward your own idea of what works or not? And how do you help people who want a little bit of structure and ideas about what to do? Well, one thing that's funny is um, Smart Recovery is a program that really doesn't have any structure. So they kind of set, you go to meetings and they say, here's the material. And I guess now there's a handbook. So to me, one of the things that I say to people who are familiar with SMART is if you'd like a little more structure, Stanton's program is great because (laughs) there is modules. So it's, um, I guess it's a matter of degree. I do get that question sometimes about the the structure and I'll mention that in a second. I think the way that I have personally come to look at this a little bit and that I share with people when I talk to them is that moderation, if you look at it, is a pretty small amount of drinking or something. Let's make it drinking just because that's what we're talking about. Um, So 
that would mean one or two glasses of wine or a beer, something like that, for a woman my age, my weight, all of that. Well, I never drank that way in my whole life. And I really never, I never learned to do that. That wasn't what drinking represented to me. So the idea of having a glass of wine is not appealing to me. That's not what I wanted. I wanted to get drunk and get as drunk as I could without blacking out or getting mean. And that was the rub. So I, I, it would be disingenuous for me to say that I would like to try moderate drinking because I don't think that my concept of drinking really has anything to do with moderation. And I do think that a lot of the people that we see might have misconceptions about that too. So in their minds, they say, I want to drink moderately. They look at the charts and see what that means. But really what they're thinking about is binge drinking on the weekends or not going over a 12-pack. So I think it depends on what people are really looking at, and I do sometimes call their attention to that, that that's, that would be more along the lines of harm reduction, which is valid and wonderful because that we want people to be alive and well and not hurt themselves or anybody else. But it's not moderation. I think maybe we need to look at the spectrum in a broader way on all respects. So I think one drink for somebody who likes to even feel the effects of alcohol may not do it. And our definitions are pretty restrictive. On the other hand, it's easy to convince oneself that because you have a high tolerance and all your family drinks and history and because you're, it's something given to you by God that you should be able to drink more than the average person. So it's a definitional thing. I guess. That's the first thing I think. Yeah, it does seem like there is some sort of scale here and a spectrum. So if there's somebody who's drinking, you know, 30 drinks a day and they think that it's reasonable, especially for whatever concerns, maybe health concerns or just being able to live a conscious life, that they want to continue drinking. And so they'll drink 12 beers on Saturday, 12 beers on Sunday, and then just try to live out the week. That's still a substantial amount of drinking. That's, you know, by most standards. And that would be, mm-hmm. we'd call that harm reduction. They're trying to reduce the harms associated with drinking in their life. They want to continue drinking. So that's a way that, that maybe they figured out to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but what is the difference then in your mind between harm reduction and moderation um, it seems to me that there would be no, I think this is what you're saying too, but it seems to me that there would be no universal scale of what is moderate versus what is not. But there's some obvious, we do a reductio ad absurdum and we can say that somebody drinking 30 beers a day, they're not drinking moderately. So what's, where do, where's the line in the sand if there is one? Or where's the distinction? I don't think there's a good line. The lines that I use are related to the old WHO assessment, World Health Organization, where they have a little um, 
matrix that, that you can do based on frequency and the number of drinks. And it's theoretically that overall to not have adverse health effects, that is the definition, the quote definition of moderation that I sometimes refer to. The whole, I, the concept of binge drinking is really somewhat new. So when I was binge drinking, we didn't call it that. We just called it heavy drinking. Mm. And binge drinking to me was somebody who went out kind of like your weekend guy who went out and you know got blind drunk for two three seven days and never sobered up that was my idea of binge drinking so i think that our definitions now of binge drinking based on you know the whoever who or um NIDA, the National Institute for Drug Abuse, I think that's who they are. They seem to think that binge drinking is anything, it varies. Some of them seem to say that it's intoxication. Some of them seem to say it's the blood alcohol level, you know, that in line with the what's acceptable on the roads. And some of them are a little vaguer and you know I see a lot we ask that question at the life process program when we're getting our more initial assessments of people and I would say that the definitions vary quite a bit so I don't have a hard and fast rule about that but if if somebody is telling me that they are have reduced their drinking down to 12 beers a day for the two days of the weekend and that represents a serious reduction well that's great that's good that's progress is it moderate drinking no is it better you bet you know so why is that not moderate because from a health standpoint i don't think that you can find a definition out there that would call that Moderation. If they want to call that moderation themselves and they're okay with whatever the ramifications of that level of drinking may be, that's fine. I think most people probably are on a little more of a journey with it. And it depends. So, you know, I mean, who am I? If somebody gets down to, say, four beers a day and they never go over that, I, I don't know. That doesn't fit the who definition, but if there's nothing going wrong in life and everybody's happy, who's to say? Sounds right. good. Health right. is good. People are going to work. Wife is happy. Kids are getting attention. You know, I think those are the, the measures and they're, and they're personal. But I think that in general, I would say people who over drink tend to feel that moderate drinking is much higher than people who are not heavy drinkers feel. Parsing the definitions, I guess it's always been interesting to me. So that same person who drinks 12 beers Saturday, 12 beers Sunday, and they've decided that is them having achieved a really good life balance. Every time they think about what's going on in their lives, it's not so much the beer that they're drinking, although that's an interesting, it, 
apparently has a place in their life. But, you know, they're able to spend time with their families. They're working. They're not feeling sick. They seem to be in reasonable health, at least for the time being. And everything seems well balanced. Then nobody, you wouldn't ever say, well, that's not the right goal. But if that same person were to ask you, you know what, I think I'd like to get to a good, measured, moderate way of drinking. Do you have any advice? You would not be inclined to say, well, you know what, let's start with 12 beers during the weekend. So it's like people can set their own goals, but if they're going to ask about what it means to drink moderately and in a healthful way, generally speaking, then you seem, D, personally, you seem like a good person to ask that kind of a question to, who you might have suggestions about what that could look like. And and you could offer different kinds of scenarios that are more realistic than maybe someone like me, who I'm less inclined to give any advice or try to offer any any measure about what that might be, even if people ask me. I think I, I tend to push people to answer that question on their own by asking you know asking them questions in a in a way to interrogate their thinking. But I think that maybe for a lot of people, it's very useful to have someone like you who can say, "Well, I know people who have drunk this much, and this seems to be miserably a healthy, moderate way of drinking." So that's an interesting. I think that's an interesting difference between me and you is that you don't lose any of the things that I was talking about in working with people and motivational interviewing, which we could talk about, but you add the element of being able to offer some sort of concise way of thinking about things. If that's what's asked of you. You know, it's a funny, it's a funny point there because one of the things at smart recovery and they use motivational interviewing as well, um, more now than they used to, but that's where I first learned about motivational interviewing. Um, and they're very careful about the language that they use in not telling people what to do, even though the goal is dictated to be abstinence. Right. And in a funny way, I think that you and the people at SMART and people like that, it's, prof- it's a professional approach that has to do with your training in, as in social work and psychology and as um, professionals. And I am not a professional. And so... I come at it from a slightly different perspective. So while I've never liked the, the term advice, or, and that's like a bad word at SMART. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, they, we call it suggestions, if we must. But I do think there's some room for suggestions as long as we're not telling people what they should do. Now, I am very cautious about, like our friend with his 12-pack a day on the weekend thing, I personally would challenge somebody who's drinking a 12-pack on the weekend how much quality time they're able to have 
with their families if they're drinking that much and whether or not their families would agree with them that it's not a problem at all and that they're delightful company during those weekend days. What would that look like to challenge it? I would ask them, would your family agree that this is a totally reasonable way to drink? Right. Do you feel that it's a, it's a reasonable amount? What's, you know, what is, what's, what makes you feel like that's a good amount? What's the cutoff? What's the line for you? You know, I tend to think that when people come to us, that they have a concern about what they're doing and are looking at least partly for ideas. So that's why I think suggestions can be useful. I think that it can be difficult for people, even having made a decision that they want to stop or cut back on something, to backtrack. So when I would stop drinking, I would say, I know I need to stop drinking. I have to stop. But then when, you know, that day came, I'm going to stop tomorrow. And when tomorrow came, I would want to negotiate about that. Like, did I really have to stop altogether? Did I really have to stop today? Did I really have to stop drinking beer? What if I just got rid of whiskey? Did, and so I think that as a coach, I want to help people remember what they wanted in the first place. Not necessarily what I think is right for them, but to ask them questions like, what changed when you first got here? You thought you wanted to stay away from drinking altogether. Has something changed that makes you feel like you don't need to approach it that way anymore? Things like that to get people to think. So I think I'm... Come, I don't know. I think I'm a pretty direct person, and people find that um, they can be a little taken aback by that sometimes. I think underneath, I'm very hesitant ever to tell people what to do, but I'm not shy about sharing my opinions on various things, if that makes sense. Sure. And I think you're pretty good about, I mean, I've never been a client of yours, I guess, but <laughs> you've always been pretty good about sharing opinions when those opinions are solicited or when the situation calls for it. I should say, I should back up too and say that um, I'm not, I'm also not opposed to providing suggestions, especially when they're asked of me. I give suggestions right. all the time. Um, tell me if you align with, this or not. Um, so I, you were talking about how you might speak with somebody around thinking about their life space when they're drinking 12 beers a day over the weekend. And you might, it's not pushing back, but you might get them to talk a little bit about what, what their life looks like. What can you remind me about your goals? Actually here, this is, this is more of what I would do. Um, can you remind me of your goals? Are you adhering to those values that you set for yourself? Um, how have things changed for the better? You know, what are areas for growth? What accounts for this? Um, does your drinking have something, to, anything to do with this? Or does it have its, you know, what places your drinking have in these? And I, I think that I would, 
I would hope that some of those answers come out kind of organically, but I would be, my thought would be around, are you sure kind of a thing. So you've seen progress. I'd be wondering maybe, are you feeling just okay because it's better than it was? Are you okay with stopping here? Do you think that there's more improvement insofar as there is? What would that improvement look like? And I don't know if that's the, I mean, I think we would be reaching the same goal, but is that something like what you would be doing to, to push a person to uh, think a little harder about their life space? Well, I think, first of all, let me, let me backtrack for one second and say that when I first meet somebody at the Life Process Program, one of the first things that I try to determine, and it doesn't always come out in their first exercise or two that they, that they give to us in writing, <coughs> excuse me, is to find out what it is that they're looking to do by being here. And so I try to, I, I realize that people may not know exactly what they want to do. I'm not trying to get them, you know, are you trying to quit? Are you trying to, right. you know, player yourself? But right. at the same time, I want to know, so what is it that you're looking to do here? And I'll sometimes, if they're hesitant about or vague, I'll try to pin it down a little bit and say, so generally, there's a few ways you can approach. Some people think that abstinence is the best way. Personally, I have experience with that, and it ended up being something that, you know, I am a, the poster child for abstinence now. Right. But um, I also find, and even for people, whether they want to stop forever or not, a lot of people want to stop for a period of time. And... I think that's useful. I think it can be useful to clear your head, to kind of break some habits and associations and to give it whatever period of time makes sense to you. I don't personally think seven days is enough, but it's a great start. 30 days more so. Honestly, I would go for like six months or a year to really get the full effects, but nobody wants to hear that. And most people would prefer to cut back than to jumpstart it by stopping. Mm -hmm. So I, I say that just like that to people and then would say, do you have any ideas about what you're thinking about doing to get yourself started? What kind of change you're looking to make? And a lot of people say, well, eventually I might like to drink moderately. And I probably wouldn't try to pin that down initially. A little later, I would probably ask them what that would look like to them. You know, what would moderate drinking look like? And I would probably give some caution about that, just that it's very easy to escalate it, you know, to say, I want to drink moderately. I'll only drink on my birthday and New Year's. And then within probably 10 minutes flat, all of a sudden you're saying, you know, it would be fine if I drank every day as long as I didn't drink more than six beers. And mm -hmm. I, I've, I've done that myself where I've changed my goal completely in 
like less than the time that it took to walk across the street to the store. Right. Um, you know, this is, this is interesting because what you're talking about is that you are very much uh, participant or client centered. You do let them tell you what they want and you continue to engage them in talking about what they want and how maybe that's changed from one point in time to another. And you're making a really good distinction there that I had to, um, I had to grapple with years ago when it came to drinking. And so I, I went, people know, I think that I continue to drink. Um, I would say moderately, but the way that I did that wasn't to say, I want to drink moderately. I wonder what the right number is. The way that I did that was thinking about where alcohol fit into my picture of a decent life. And I tried it out and now I drink when it makes sense. So instead of having a number, which some people I know do and that, that they thrive on that, but instead of having a number ahead of time and saying, or, or saying, okay, this special occasion, I'm going to, I'm going to drink, but no other times. There's a lot to unpack about the basis for creating such a plan that could change between one outlook and another. My outlook is um, I'll drink when it makes sense, but I have a vague set of rules for myself about what I will and won't let myself do. And you're very good about seeing that thought process or noticing that there could be varying thought processes that are, that would be worth untangling for people. Is that an okay way to say that? Yes, definitely. I, I mean, I, I agree with that. And I think one of the things I, I do find some value in attaching numbers to things, you know, I'm not a scientist or anything, but just in general, you know, numbers can be useful. And I don't mean that even it's a reference point. It, they don't oh, have yeah. any meaning necessarily. I know some people so, who have, um, I, I have, I work with people now who have, they've run the experiment so many times about how many beers and what alcohol percentage in each beer makes sense to them on a daily basis and actually still makes them feel comfortable and uh, seemingly healthy that they now have a very precise number and precise time of day, just a way of kind of organizationally and conscientious thinking, analytical thinking about things that makes sense for a lot of people. And I'm sorry that I cut you off. No, that's okay. I was going to say that one of the things that I think can be useful or of interest to people is to just track things a little bit because we don't always Mm. realize what we're doing. And now for you though, Zach, I, I've never heard you express a concern about your drinking. So I wouldn't jump to say, well, wait a minute, how much are you drinking? Is it this? Is it less than this at every time? Is it how many times a week? If you came to me and said, I'm a little worried about my drinking, I would ask those questions, not because right. I think that there's a magic number, but just to get a sense of, are we talking about you're having one or two drinks, but it's a little too frequent, or are we talking that suddenly it's not one or two drinks, it's more like 12 or 14, but you don't seem to show it much, or 
you know, there's all kinds of specifics to uh, to a situation, and that just gives a parameter. Sure, you know, but the virtue of coming to the program, people are already saying tacitly, even if not overtly, they're saying, I have a problem with something, and there's something about my behavior that's not matching my idea of what, you know, some some balance would actually look like. So right off the bat, it's fair game for someone who's a helper of that person to want to start talking with them and thinking about ways that they might uh, be able to think about and achieve and visualize different kinds of goals that would lead them back on track into some sort of logical thinking about what balance looks like so that their behavior matches their, their ideas. So I think that's all fair game. Sorry. Also, um, I have had people who, when you get down to it, they really don't think that they have an issue. They're coming because their wife wants them or their, their girlfriend wants them. Ah, yeah. And so, Again, it depends. I, if they really don't, if they're happy and content with the way things are, I don't know that it's our job to convince them that they have a problem. But we, you know, I, I think we try to get them to look kind of broadly at their situation. Like, why is it that your girlfriend disagrees on this? Like, yeah. is there? You know, is she really just overreacting? Is it because of, you know, past experiences she's had? Or is it, you know, what are the reasons? And so you can kind of get at things a little differently there, too. Um, and some people, as I think, you know, Stanton feels there are a lot more people like this out there, maybe really don't have a problem at all, but they've been convinced that they do because, you know, 25 years ago they had a run-in with the police when they were a kid and they were told that they were an alcoholic and could never drink again. And that sort of gets into the same venue too between uh, a spouse wanting them to change behavior and then having cultural or societal or ideological pressures to change the behavior. Uh, You're saying – in no way, I mean, this is one thing we will certainly all agree on who work in the program. In no way will we ever say, look, someone wanted you to come here, so obviously you have a problem. Now, what is it? <laughs> you know, so, but, <laughs> but, what we, you know, but it could be you know, one way of framing that whole thing is that there at least, at the very least, there is a problem. Uh, we would let that person tell us, but if that person really values the relationship with their spouse and want to do what's making their partner and their family happy that there is a problem and the problem is some sort of a collaboration problem or a problem with aligning one person's values against another and trying to make that work. So that's where I think that the broad scope of the program is useful in that way because we don't have to then focus on the amount that somebody drinks or what they believe about their drinking as the uh, the only thing that we focus on, we can think about what their values really are and what they really want to accomplish. And they can decide whether they have a problem or not. And oftentimes I do get a lot of people who come to the program. They say that they have a problem with drinking. I ask them to tell me about it. And then, you know, the LPP kind of goes through questions about what life looks like. And I have had people finish the program and say, this has been excellent. Thank you. Even though they're uh, two modules in out of eight, and they say, you know what, I'm realizing that 
I'm all good. <laughs> and then they're out. And that's, a, that's very successful, I think, um, if, the, if our measurement of success means anything. And at the same time, they haven't completed a program. So I'm interested to get your, your take on that because I know a lot of times usually completing a program or doing a program or set of rules indefinitely is what is supposed to constitute success. Oh, I don't subscribe to that idea. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think you did. I I think that the people that we get here run the full gamut. So I have definitely had people in every direction. I've had people who went through one module and said, you know, I understand better. I'm fine. And that's great you know some of them i suspect might be back some of them i think really did put together everything they need some people have said i realize that i need more intensive help than this so i'm gonna go get my bipolar treated and i'll be back when i have a better handle on that interesting I've had people who said, you know, thank you so much. I realize I don't have a problem. I've had people who said, oh, my gosh, I thought I could moderate, but I really want to quit. I, it's, it's been very interesting to me, you know, that I suppose there's a fear that I had that if you introduce the idea of moderation or um, – non not perfect abstinence people like permission to lapse that they will seize on that and want to immediately try that and it's a really it's not a respectful position to take with people when i really think about it mm. and I have definitely found that the less I press people on the way they want to approach it, the more likely they are to be more radical than I would be in what I think they should do. <laughs> I, I do encourage people to experiment. I mean, I think if people want to experiment, they should do that and and make sure they know what it is that they have in in mind that they're trying to do, you know, and and see how it goes. And I suppose the the thing that I would, you know, if there was one piece of advice that I would give across the board to everybody, it would be self-honesty is probably the biggest key. You can do and say and act any way you want to but if you're honest with yourself and what you're doing that's that's the test you can't go wrong there Mm. you know and i think the less we press people probably the more room they have to try to be honest it can be nice yeah well said have you so that's a way of thinking that has i wouldn't say changed because it sounds like you've always had that sensibility, but maybe it's developed since you've been Definitely. working in LPP. Definitely. Have you have you ever have you had any more any other developments like that in your ways of thinking since you've you've started with working in the program? 
Oh, I would say that in general, my thinking has broadened a lot. Now, I personally adopted that REBT framework as my own, and I use it regularly. That's Albert Ellis has a tool called the ABC tool. Yeah. I love that tool. They used to call me the queen of the ABC at Smart. <laughs> and, you know, I helped, I can't even count how many people I've, I've taught and, and helped with that tool, and I use it. Um, I think that the Life Process Program has a, ha, is broader in its use of values as an orienting piece. Now, SMART does too, but it's, it's not as central somehow. It's almost like um, as more advanced work. And I think that the Life Process Program really pulls it right in from beginning to end, which I like. And it also is broader, I think, in the SMART and REBT tend to be only in the here and now. And I think that the way Dr. Peel approaches it, he's broader in the psychology and he also allows for some of the influences in our lives in a slightly more robust way. So yeah. things like the role of family and the importance of social connection and things like that, that SMART and that particular philosophy really sticks to a very individualistic perspective Whereas I think that at the Life Process Program, we allow more room for sort of relationship and community. And I think that that's, personally, I think that that's needed in today's world, at always. So that's something I guess I didn't know was a lack until I started seeing the room that Dr. Peel created for that slightly broader approach. Very interesting. It has been. It's really, I mean, it's been a very interesting journey for me. And I've definitely benefited from putting it together and from being able to talk to other people and to our clients about how they process things, what's helpful, what's not. I think it's... um I think it's fascinating and I'm, I continue to be very encouraged for people's ability to change and, and accomplish the things that they want to. And it's, it's really, it's very inspiring. What, if anything, do you see as the areas which could use improvement for LPP for just to throw something out there? I don't think we had, group involvement really like people getting together in a group virtually or otherwise until you were on board. If, if that's not true, then at least you're the one who hosts group meetings now for uh, participants in the program. And that seems to be something that is so important to people, just that socialization and being able to have a space to 
to talk about things. I'm wondering if there that either that or if there's anything else that you feel we could add on or that could be improved about LPP. Well, speaking to the group thing, that's a little bit of a funny one because in some ways that's a little bit against what Dr. Peel talks about, which is I, he doesn't feel that we should be a dependent on groups or feel that we're only fit to talk to people with problems. So that can be a downside to groups like AA is that, you know, there's some encouragement for that thinking like, we're defective people, so therefore the only people that can really understand me and relate to me are other defective people. Right, right. Well, that's something that's a little funny in presenting a group altogether. And I personally, I guess I would extend the way I look at that to, to thinking about the permanence that we want to give these things in our lives. So. Yeah. I think that a group, when we're looking at cues and people are in similar places trying to work through things, can be super helpful and supportive and give a lot of encouragement and um, strength to other people. And it's a really nice dynamic. I think that there is a tendency to get too attached to a group, the specific people that are in it, and the way that the group functions at one particular point in time, and feel like you need that, and that it that things will go wrong if you don't have that. So I'm a little torn about the whole group concept in that way. I do think that the more, the biggest thing I would like to see in approaches in general is for it to be easier for people to come in and out of programs like ours. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how that would look logistically or financially, or I'm not even thinking about that right now. But from a, just that human level of we tend to feel like it's a defeat when we have to go back to a group when we were doing well at something. And so I feel that that's true in, in all, of, all of the, not just groups, but in a, going back to a program. So for instance, when I went back to SMART, I had had a couple of years of sobriety. I had a couple of years of a lapse, very big, ugly. Everybody knew about it. And so when I came back after that lapse, it was very awkward. I felt like a pariah. I was also respected in that community, so it was kind of worse in a way. I wasn't just the average community member. And so I just wish that it was easier to be a part of 
programs or groups like this without feeling like you're exposing that you have a problem or that things aren't going well for yourself or, oh, no, she's back. That must mean she laughs, that kind of thing. Right. And I don't know the, the method for it. I understand what you mean. You want to keep a balance. You don't want people reliant on a group or thinking that if this group falls through, then it means that I have nothing left to rely on. It's my only pillar and the only way I stay, you know, achieving any sort of balance. And you also don't want people to uh, be so wedded to a group as their, as their, as a part of their strategy that if they leave it for a while and then they come back to it, they feel like eyes are on them that, if this person's back, that must mean they have something to sort out. You don't want the group to be a place where everyone's just rehashing the worst parts of their lives. But we, I see, we, I do know what you mean that we, it's great to have it available in terms of being able to communicate with other people. Like there is a feeling of connectedness when you're able to move out of your own thought process for a while and hear that other people have experience life on similar terms and to be able to, you know, ask people, what's this like for you? And as long as there's group involvement, that's fluid and, you know, being used to be able to create something better and attain value, not to stick in the group or, or think of that as like a treatment option or the only way that you can move forward in life. So I do know what you mean and somehow fashioning that, to be, you know, just helpful and future oriented, but not a crutch. I agree. I think that'd be a boon really quick. We've been talking for so long and it, this always happens with you and our conversations off recording too. just, there's so much to, <laughs> to unwind and it's, it's fun. It's been cool talking to you. I do want to ask about things that you're doing um, in your own time and sort of your own projects and things that are not necessarily LPP related, even if they're even if they're LPP informed. Well, I, the the one thing I will say is I'm putting together, and I have a, a little website really for local coaching efforts. As I've become a little more part of our local community here in Cincinnati, um, the site itself is called Encouraging Recovery. I thought that was a nice little play on words. And the website is recoveryd.com. So I hope to have some reading material there. It's all consonant really with both LPP and SMART. I have links out to both of them. And I hope it'll be a little bit of a hub just for, you know, decent thinking about addiction in practical, simple ways. Um, Beyond that, I do all kinds of things. I really have a background in um, technology and business, and I try to keep my hand in there. I'm a project manager, and um, I haven't been doing so much with that lately. I've been doing some QA testing more recently, and I just fix computers here and there, and Every now and then I put together a little website or a PowerPoint presentation. So I have a lot of, um, you know, that's that ball, Jack of all trades. Jack master of all trades. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you're yeah. selling yourself short. You're a master of many trades, but trades, <laughs> traits <laughs> and trades, whatever. 
Um, Thank you. Anything that you think, and by the way, I'll send people your way and toward LPP. There are lots of links in the show notes that people can follow for any of the topics that we discussed today, including um, pointing people toward your work because it's interesting and it's going to provide value for people. And I'm wondering if there's anything that, besides everything, <laughs> that I left out from our talk today, which, um, you know, which would be important to discuss or bring value to people listening. Well, just to anybody who is struggling, you know, I, I never thought I would be like the face of, you know, if this woman can do it, anybody can, but I kind of am. And I had really very extensive issues for well over 35 years. And I'm so happy that I'm free from all of that and I feel good and I have more energy than I've ever had in my life. And I just always want to say to people, there's always hope. People can always change. Life can always get better. And, you know, if one thing doesn't work, try something else because it's, it's our lives. It's, this is what we get. Awesome. D. Well, congratulations to your success generally. It's it's great to be in your network and great to be able to have you as a person I can rely on and talk to. And it's been really cool talking with you today. Oh, Zach, thank you. And you know, I was gonna I was thinking at the beginning you mentioned about the different coaches and and whatnot. And one of the things that's really nice, and I don't know quite how we do it, is that we really do seem to have a really common thread of ways that we try to approach people and help people. And I'm not quite sure how we've accomplished that. I think, I guess the force of Stanton Peel's personality and, <laughs> and logic. Um, but it's, it's always nice when we get together and talk with you, with our other coaches here. It's, um, I don't know, just stimulating, refreshing. It's really a pleasure. Thank you, Zach. Oh, thank you. We were talking with Dolores Cloward. Thank you.